Have you ever stopped and taken a moment to ask yourself, am I normal? Are my thoughts normal? Is my brain working right? If you have, props to you for the introspection. And if you haven't, it's never too late to start looking inwards. But what really is normal? What qualifies as normal brain activity or even normal behavior? And what happens when you find yourself, or rather, you're found to be, quote unquote, abnormal? Well, that depends on when and where you find yourself. Now, for the most part, normalcy is subjective. That means that abnormality is too, right? But let's take a step back in time just for a moment. It's 1937, and things are starting to look up a bit. You survived the Great Depression, and you're getting back on your feet. But something is just not right. You don't know why, but you feel unwell, or everyone around you just says that you are. But lucky for you, there is a groundbreaking medical treatment in the new field of psychosurgery. You're a creature of habit, and so you pick up the latest issue of the New York Times, and you start reading about this new miracle procedure for treating a whole slew of maladies. The article lists out, quite exhaustively, that if you suffer from, quote, tension, apprehension, anxiety, depression, insomnia, suicidal ideas, delusions, hallucinations, crying spells, melancholia, obsessions, panic states, disorientation, pains of psychic origin, nervous indigestion, or historical paralysis, then a lobotomy might be just what you need. And the only thing keeping you from a calming quiescence is just on the other side of an ice pick. From phobias and addiction to yoga and the effects of music on the brain, we're diving headfirst into the vast world of neuroscience. Listen in as we unfold some of the latest developments in the field, winding back time to look at how we got here and looking forward to see where neuroscience can take us. My name is Nicolas Rios, and this is The Brainy Bunch. And today, we're unraveling the history of lobotomies. Something about lobotomies seems to continuously captivate audiences of all ages. You need not look too far back to see the hold this procedure has had on popular media. From Sylvia Plath's novel The Bell Jar, published in 1963, to the famous 1975 film One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, featuring a crude and sadistic nurse ratchet. Even in recent years, the mental asylum genre has seemingly made a comeback, and we can certainly thank Sarah Paulson for breathing life into the genre via her roles in American Horror Story Asylum and even the recent Netflix series Ratchet. But irrespective of the medium, the featured lobotomy procedures never seem to fail to draw you in and make you wonder what would happen if you were on that operating table dressed in white. So how did it all start? Well, to get there, we're going to have to begin our story not in 1937 or even in 1935, but all the way back to prehistoric times. Our story begins with a series of skulls dating as far back as the Neolithic era. Human skulls, uncovered in places like ancient Peru, Greece, Rome, and all over the world, have been found with similar evidence of man-made holes in the skulls themselves. In fact, trephination, or the process of perforating a skull with surgical instruments, is the oldest documented surgical procedure performed by man. What's more interesting is that these prehistoric and crude perforations in these skulls demonstrated signs of healing, meaning that the original owners of these skulls actually lived to tell their tales. But why would ancient societies have a need for such a procedure? What about the skull and its contents required intervention? 
Archaeologists and scholars in neurosurgery, such as Miguel A. Faria Jr., explain that these procedures were most likely intended to treat a wide variety of perceived neurological conditions, from infantile epilepsy to convulsions, headaches, and even possessions by evil spirits. Moreover, these procedures were often conducted by shamans, spiritual specialists, and medicine men, who brought with them specialized tools of the trade, like the Incan Tumi, or the Greco-Roman Terabra Serrata, which looks a lot like a carpenter's hole saw. So, with the human fossil record displaying numerous trephinated skulls, and archaeological evidence of the continuation of trephination throughout history, it would be hard to argue that there wasn't something interesting happening whenever these procedures were conducted. This continuity suggests that the procedures bore some success. Otherwise, why else would they have lasted this long? This, then, is an early predecessor to the modern lobotomy as we know it today. But there are still a few gaps in the story between ancient trephinated skulls and the lobotomy mobiles that traversed the United States and the United Kingdom in the 1930s. It wouldn't be until around 1848 that we really begin to see the emergence of more modern and scientific conceptions about the role of the brain and neurological functions. This takes us then to the case of Phineas Gage, a railroad foreman at the Rutland and Burlington Railroad Company, who was made famous by surviving a would-be fatal explosion that launched a large tamping iron through his skull. The tamping iron, a long iron rod measuring 3 feet 7 inches in length by 1 and a quarter inch in diameter, and weighing a hefty 13 and a quarter pounds, was propelled by the explosion through Mr. Gage's left cheek, exiting his skull near the top front section of his head. Having only damaged the left frontal lobe of his brain, Mr. Gage miraculously survived the incident, much to the awe of the scientific community. A physician named Dr. Harlow was responsible for monitoring and recording Phineas Gage's health for the 20 years following the incident. Dr. Harlow noted that while Mr. Gage initially appeared to be in good health, he suffered from a distinct lack of social inhibitions, which led scientists to closely analyze cerebral localization by studying brain pathology. In other words, by studying disorders of the brain, scientists were able to increasingly map out which parts of the brain control specific bodily functions. In Mr. Gage's case, damage to the prefrontal cortex resulted in a seemingly new Phineas Gage. Dr. Harlow explained that, quote, previous to Gage's injury, although untrained in the schools, he possessed a well-balanced mind and was looked upon by those who knew him as a shrewd, smart businessman, very energetic and persistent in executing all his plans of operation, end quote. However, Harlow also notes that, quote, in this regard, his mind was radically changed, so decidedly that his friends and acquaintances said he was no longer Gage, end quote. Phineas Gage was reportedly a different man following his incident, but why? Regardless, his survival and documented behavioral responses to this brain trauma would become the foundations for modern psychosurgery. So we've discussed the historical continuity of trephination in societies from around the world, and in the modern context, we've seen the scientific community begin to narrow down the regions in the brain that are responsible for specific functions. So, could scientists develop a surefire method to alter human behavior by physically manipulating the brain? Swiss psychiatrist Gottlieb Burkhardt certainly believed that he could. In 1888 and 89, 
Burkhart famously conducted a series of brain experiments on a cohort of six schizophrenic patients over a span of 10 years. He documented his process of performing open brain surgical procedures on his patients, whom he would remove sections of their brains from as an attempt to treat their schizophrenia. Here, schizophrenia can be defined as a long-term mental disorder involving a breakdown in the relations between thought, emotion, and behavior, and can lead to faulty perceptions, inappropriate actions and feelings, withdrawal from reality in personal relationships, and results in fantasy, delusion, and a sense of mental fragmentation. For Burkhart, experimental success was usually described as having a quote-unquote quieting effect on the patients themselves. However, the success of his procedures widely varied, and his work was actually overwhelmingly shunned by the scientific community at the time. But at last, with Burkhart, we have one of the first psychosurgical attempts at modifying human behavior, and just over 45 years later, his work would be built upon by a pioneering neurologist named Antonio Egas Moniz. So, the story goes that Moniz was first inspired to create his groundbreaking neurosurgical procedure after attending the Second International Neurological Congress in London in 1935. At the Congress, Moniz attended a research presentation given by Yale neurologists John Fulton and Carlisle Jacobson. Fulton and Jacobson had been presenting their research on chimpanzees that had undergone neurosurgery. They reported that the chimps were noticeably calmer after the removal of their frontal lobes and had essentially joined the quote-unquote happiness cult. Drawing on the work of Burkhart and the procedures of Fulton and Jacobson, Moniz moved quickly to secure his own prestige in the field and begin human trials. With the help of his colleague, Almeida Lima, the two created the neurosurgical procedure known as the leucotomy. The first leucotomies involved injecting alcohol through a trephination on the side of the skull and into the white matter of the frontal lobes, but keeping track of the varying volumes of alcohol used in each case rendered these initial procedures far too complicated. Instead, Moniz and Lima refined their procedure. Rather than injecting non-standard volumes of alcohol into the brain, they found that by inserting a small surgical rod with a wired loop at the end into the trephinations, they could manually eviscerate the white matter of the frontal lobe with just a few flicks of the wrist. In 1936, the pair published their research findings on their 20 leucotomy patients. And in 1949, Moniz would receive the Nobel Prize for Medicine. But how did this procedure make its way into the United States? Completely captivated by Moniz's leucotomy procedure, Walter Freeman, with the aid of James Watts, would perform the first leucotomy in the United States on September 4, 1936, at the George Washington University Hospital. Alice Hood Hammett would be the first American patient to receive the new procedure. But it is also important to note that Hammett reportedly tried to withdraw her consent from the procedure the day before her operation. She had apparently feared that they would need to shave her head to perform the leucotomy. Freeman, undoubtedly anxious to have this first operation underway, assured Hammett that her head would not be shaved. And so, the next day, she would find herself on that operating table. While she experienced severe language difficulties and agitation following the operation, Freeman largely considered her case a success, and he considered Hammett to be cured from her depression. Freeman, who served as a director of laboratories at St. Elizabeth's Hospital in Washington, D.C., and as chairman of the Department of Neurology at the George Washington University, 
was consumed by his efforts to refine, expand, and popularize the procedure in the United States. Freeman also kept close correspondence with Moniz as he worked on modifying the leucotomy procedure. Initially renaming the procedure to lobotomy and using smaller trephinations, Freeman became the foremost advocate for the operation in the United States. Having been inspired by the work of an Italian psychiatrist named Amaro Fiamberti, Freeman soon formulated a new procedure, the transorbital lobotomy. This procedure, unlike the leucotomy or regular lobotomy, required no trephinations. Patients would first be sedated with an electroshock machine applied to their temples. After sedation, an ice pick-shaped rod would be inserted into the inner corner of the eye before being struck with a mallet to crack the orbital roof of the skull, before proceeding to sweep the rod laterally and fundamentally destroying the tissue of the frontal lobe. The transorbital approach was quicker, cleaner, and didn't require the intricate training of a neurosurgeon to monitor anesthetic levels in the patient. But in developing and popularizing this procedure, Freeman effectively severed all professional ties with James Watts, who disparaged the crudeness and simplicity of the transorbital lobotomy. The quickness and simplicity of this new procedure would drive the rapid expansion of the practice across the United States. Lobotomy practitioners could perform the procedure in as little as 10 minutes. In all, it is estimated that approximately 50,000 lobotomies were performed in the United States, 10,000 being transorbital lobotomies, and around 3,500 being performed by Walter Freeman himself. But really, why was this procedure so popular given its questionable success rate? Well, in some cases, the alternatives were much worse. According to a 1937 report on the state of mental illness in the United States, it was estimated that there were more than 450,000 patients institutionalized in 477 asylums across the country, with nearly one half of them hospitalized for a term of five years or longer. For many patients and their caretakers, there were really only two choices, indefinite institutionalization or lobotomy. So, the expansion and popularization of lobotomies, in a sense, was a response to the overflowing and underfunded asylum and sanitarium facilities. If current or potential patients could be lobotomized and effectively tranquilized, then they would be easier to manage and less likely to remain institutionalized. But it is also important to thoroughly consider which individuals predominantly underwent these treatments. While the majority of institutionalized patients and diagnosed schizophrenics were men, Women, nevertheless, were the primary recipients of lobotomies. Now, if you're asking yourself why that is, let's consider one of the first things that we covered, the idea of normal behavior. We left off concluding that normalcy is subjective. That means that so-called normal social behavior changes depending on your historical context. So let's say we're back in the 1930s. If you're a woman, or child who does not have a socially recognized legal agency over decision-making processes concerning your own body, your consent to these procedures may not be entirely yours to give, or it may not even be considered. This puts you at greater risk for medical policing of your social behavior, whereby lobotomies can, can be used as a corrective measure for any individual, but particularly for women who fail to behave in the socially proper manner. Soon after Moniz received his Nobel Prize in 1949, the popularity of lobotomies experienced a sharp decline. With the advent of the first effective psychiatric medicine, chlorpromazine, 
patients with psychotic disorders could more effectively be treated and managed by healthcare institutions and their care providers. Better yet, chlorpromazine didn't have the spotty success rate or the debilitating side effects that came with lobotomies. When paired with the onslaught of negative media portrayals of the procedure, lobotomies quickly fell out of favor among scientists and the general public. But what it left in its wake was a cautionary tale of sorts. A warning against unchecked and unregulated medical procedures and a reminder to health practitioners to do no harm. Well, thank you for listening to this episode of The Brainy Bunch and for following me down this rabbit hole of history. And if you found this story interesting, don't forget to subscribe to our show and share our page on your social channels. And more importantly, stay tuned for our next episode as Hannah Jacobson takes us into the intricate world of your gut microbiome.